you have your Bible, open with me today to this most famous psalm. Could be argued that this may be some of the most famous verses in the entire Bible. And it occurred to me in thinking through what to bring to you on this Sunday morning, it has been quite some time since we've been in this psalm. 23rd Psalm, the title of the message very simply, The Lord is My Shepherd. Verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Pearl of the Psalm, Psalm 23. Again, given this simple title from the first verse, the Lord is my shepherd. When I was reading this, actually what happened, I was going to sleep Friday night and just decided to quote from memory as I was going to sleep this 23rd Psalm. And I'm going to share something with you, be truthful with you. I was somewhat disturbed by the fact that I couldn't quote it precisely from memory, which is again, it's Psalm 23. And when I checked it out in the morning, I even forgot one half of a verse. But what that did is it gave me a mark. It's not that I've been staying away from the Bible. It just shows you, the application would be, it just shows you how easy it is to drift. Easy, easy, easy. Now with 31,102 verses in the Bible, we're apt to have a slip of memory once in a while, so I didn't get too disturbed about it. Just opened it up in the morning, refreshed my memory, and now it's back. But it served as a, well, I'd say a red flag. How easy it is to have the mind drift away from the words of God and before you know it, you're not here, and you're someplace else. I've always pictured that type of falling away like the second hand on a clock. Just one tick at a time. If you don't pay attention, and I pay attention quite a bit to my watch and the second hand for various reasons, if you don't pay attention, you're not noticing that time is constantly ticking. And I'm checking my watch quite often, again for various reasons, and just to notice how the time is just going, and you don't get it back. So for me to walk away from the Lord, or I should say to distance myself from the Lord like Peter did, is a very insidious and slow process. Before you know it, you're like Peter. When Peter said to the Lord, I don't know what other people are going to do, and you just said that we're all going to deny you, but I'm telling you, if I had to lay down my life for you, I will do it. I will never deny you. Within a couple of hours, he's the first one mentioned. Well, they all did. But Jesus told him, he said, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. So I'm saying to you in all candor that the best of professing Christians can start to tick away. And again, I'm not even suggesting here that you walk so far away that you don't know Christ. Just simply saying that it's easy to let the discipline down. It's like water. It always seeks the course that has the least resistance. 
And we are seeking a course that has the most resistance, starting in our flesh, adding in the power, presence of demonic beings and sinful people and influences and on and on. We're not walking in a course that is entirely easy to accomplish, but it's very easy to forget it. Don't ever be one of those people. I've heard this many, many times, especially early on in their walk. I'm never going to leave Jesus. I'm never going to, you know. And over the years, I'm thinking specifically of one man who made that statement, who I don't know what he's doing today, but I know when I was down in New York City as his pastor, it was only a couple of months later he wasn't around that couldn't be found back in his old lifestyle. Never believe that you could not be that Peter. Always understand the power of the flesh in its negative context. It'll lead you quickly. We must have our minds, Isaiah 26.3, we must have our minds fixed on the Lord. Always on the target, which is God. So we start in verse 1. My recollection, at least, is during the 70s, the Jesus movement, there was a lot of emphasis placed on making Jesus your personal Savior. The reason for that, I believe, was that in the institutional churches, it just became just a bunch of people getting together. We had a system where, you know, there was, well, at least where I went to church, you had all these leaders in the church that were special, that were priests and all that. And I don't know what got lost in the translation from the Bible saying that you're all priests, every single one of you, all priests. We are the chosen generation, a royal priesthood. That's everybody. So perhaps we got back to the roots when it was being accent, have you received Christ as your personal savior? That got us away from, do you attend church on Sundays or are you the member of a church or were you raised in a church? It got us to the point of being able to pinpoint, are you the church? And I want to share with you a story. When my wife and I were first born again, we were in a small church down in Yonkers, New York. And a woman came in one night on a Wednesday night Bible study. And we used to have a time, maybe it was a Sunday night. There was a space given for testimonies. She stood up. She was new. None of us knew who she was. And she was reading from this psalm. And this is how she accented it. She said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And continued to read like that. Interestingly, it was one of the elders who stood up. He was absolutely beside himself in a sense, one sense, angry, pointing out to someone who's a guest in the church, that's not how you interpret the scripture. Well, naturally, we don't see an accent mark over the word my, but it was a statement taken way too far. That woman never returned. In fact, I had friends who came that I brought that never returned, simply because some things that were said were said with such vitriol and I'm very glad that God has always somehow given me the sense. He gave me the knowledge to realize this isn't the gospel. This isn't the way it's supposed to be presented. You don't put someone down who stands up to give glory to God and make a correction that was not done in any type of spirit of camaraderie and fellowship. It was done in anger. She never came back. That's over 40 years ago this event occurred. But I want to let you know this morning that I agree with her. That we can take the scriptures, and you can just take the plain text before you look up Greek and Hebrew words. I'll give you a little bit of a lesson here. And you can say the verse this way. The Lord is my shepherd. Then go through it again and say, the Lord is my shepherd. And then we get to what I just mentioned. The Lord is my shepherd. 
then accent the word shepherd by saying the Lord is my shepherd. It's a great way to make the Bible come alive in addition to putting in your own name into these places. And I've shared that with you before. For God so loved Ray Barnett, makes the Bible come alive rather than what it actually says, the general view. When you put your name in these promises, the Lord is Ray Barnett's shepherd. The Bible just comes alive. And when you accent certain words, like I just did, the Lord is my shepherd, 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 it also comes alive and you get a fuller meaning without even studying the text that's underneath, which in this case would be Hebrew. The Lord is my shepherd. But the question that you have to ask yourself, and we'll be able to get through this, I think, in the message of how to do it, is he really your shepherd? When we look at this here, we want to accent Lord, and I told you one of the advantages of our King James Bible is that the translators would put in all caps whenever the Hebrew word underneath Lord was Jehovah. Because we have another aspect of the King James Bible, and we have other places in the Old Testament where Lord is in lowercase because it represents the Hebrew word Adonai. God has many names, he's still one God. But this is his primary name, Jehovah, Yadevaveh, a name that is not able to truly be pronounced because Hebrew is all consonants, no vowels. So after many centuries, the Masoretes came along with a system of pronunciation, putting little what looks like dots underneath the words of the Bible to give us an idea. But even then, it's not always 100% how to pronounce Yadevaveh. And so we come up with the word Yehovah, Jehovah, Yahweh. But in the best sense of this, God's name is not able to be pronounced. And the Jews here and to this day still will skip the consonant, put G-D. You may do that. I don't know. I don't. But you may. But I always write Jesus' name, always in capitals, or the J. And I always write God with a capital G and never, never put a small G. The Lord, Jehovah, the self-existent one. Keep this in mind that God doesn't need anything because if he did, he wouldn't be God. He'd be like you and me. And we are created in his image, not vice versa. I have a lot of needs. God has none. I don't know what's the word to say when I hear usually a song leader. And it could be the pastor, the preacher as well. God needs your praise. And he quote a few verses that are completely out of context. If God needs my praise, then he's missing something. I went to a pastor seminar some years ago, many years ago, where the speaker who was in a megachurch was saying that God has no plan B. You're plan A, and there's no plan B. And I want to let you know what that inspired in me. It didn't inspire in me more zeal. It inspired in anxiety. And I'll take it to the extreme, which he was not trying to do, but I will. It almost put me in charge of the universe in my own mind. And that is simply false. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and all the way through the alphabet, God has more than one way to get his will accomplished. And he will do it. That doesn't leave us off the hook for our responsibilities. Don't get me wrong. That's what this guy was, uh, this preacher, was trying to point out. But he took it to an extreme. And you don't inspire people by manipulating them. Causing them anxiety. God needs nothing. And he is your shepherd. 
The God who has no needs. Not in this world, not in the next, never did before this world existed or you existed. And he is your shepherd. So I would suggest today, when this verse comes back to mind, that you accent the word my and make it personal. The Lord is my shepherd. But I said that raises the question, if he really is. And we'll see this as we go on. So it says here, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I'm thinking of another verse in Psalms where it says the young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but the Lord's people, this is a paraphrase, and the righteous will never lack or want for any good thing. It is not saying that everything you desire when it comes to lust or greed is going to be given to you. It just says you'll never want for any good thing that you actually need in life. Jesus said, of course, the same thing. Now, here's a question for you. Do you believe it? I shall not want. Here's a report on the television set that says, oh, the stock, you know, I go through the stock market thing. I'm at a point now when it comes to the news that I am aware of what's going on in the world. I just don't, I don't need, you may, I don't need to know all the details. There's too, too little, in my case, too little time left to be wasting it reading things that ultimately have to be corrected and amended, and sometimes they're just bold-faced lies. But I look at the word, and remember what Jesus said in John 17, 17, Father, sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth. I shall not want. So we have this relationship, which I find this is curious when you think about it. I'm not very critical of it as much as I'm just curious about it. As we as Americans want everybody to know that we are not sheep, we are lions. I do get the point. Unfortunately for the Christian, you are always referred to as a sheep when it comes to Jesus. So I find it to be a curious play on words. We are not sheep, but you are when you're following Christ. And we see this all through the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments. We are likened to sheep. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34, verses 11 and 12, God says, For thus saith the Lord God, there's a compound name, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. That's what we find in Jesus. I've come to seek the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They came for us as well. Verse 12, Ezekiel 34, As a shepherd seeketh out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of, listen, and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. Now, these are verses that apply directly in context to Israel. But we have application when we look at a verse or two we're going to see in a moment with Jesus. You were not pursuing God. They may have been pursuing the idea, but he was looking for you. In the dark and cloudy day, which is for a lot of us, I won't say even most, but for a lot of us, that's when we came to the Lord. We didn't come to the Lord in the height of our prosperity, when everything is going well. And in most cases, I don't hear from people with inside or outside the church when things are going well. I preached a sermon many years ago, may have preached it more than once, the title of which goes this way, Where is God when you don't need him? When your wallet has filled with money, like the rich young ruler, or the man who said, I prospered, I'll build bigger barns. Where's God when you don't need him? There is not a moment in your life on any given day when you don't need God. You know, when you study nutrition, if any of you have studied nutrition, they always talk about food. Some may mention water, 
But think of this, the most important nutrient in your body is oxygen, not water. You can live a few days, maybe weeks without water. You can't live a few minutes without oxygen. But we take it for granted. We just simply breathe. It's part of the autonomic nervous system, but we don't think about it. And that's how it is sometimes with God. We don't realize that we are dependent on His grace every moment of every day. There are some things we can do without, but without God's grace and power upholding us in minutes. Flash, we're gone. I shall not want, and here God says in Ezekiel 34, I will seek out my sheep. I will deliver them. Now that's the kind of confidence that we need. I will deliver them. You can't go home today and say, I hope that he does. I hope what Pastor Ray was reading was correct. And remember here, I give you the text right from the text. I will seek them out and I will deliver them. And you don't have to answer me, but I want you to ask yourself this question. Do you believe it? Do you believe that you shall not want, even though at times it looks that way, even though the reports say this and they say that and some things we see with our eyes. But here, God says, I will seek you out. I will deliver you from the dark and the cloudy day. I will. And that, my friend, on your personal basis of a relationship with Jesus is a question you must settle. For me, it's been settled for a long time. A long time. I shall not want. Jesus said in John chapter 10, we're familiar with these verses. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. Think about this especially some of you who served in the military, would you have served? And I know some of you are going to say yes, but just to hear the question out, would you have served if you knew somehow, and you can't know, but how many would sign up? How many would sign up for any branch of military service if they absolutely, positively were guaranteed they were going to die? You see, there's an assumption for every soldier in every army around the world, we will go out, we will kill the enemy, we will come back. Some are smart enough to know a small percentage, and it's always small, of soldiers don't return. But how many people would give up their life if they actually knew they were going to give up their life? Here's a story. I can't guarantee this is true or not. I don't recall. I just recall the story. A young woman was dying. A very young woman was dying. She needed a blood transfusion, and she had a very rare type of blood, rare blood type. It was discovered that the only person that was available was her younger brother, little guy, that had the same blood type that could save her life. Save her life! They asked the little boy if he was willing to give his sister his blood, and he was. So they hooked him up, and there was a transference of blood from the little boy's body to his older sister's. And during the process, somewhere during the process, he asked the attending physician this question. Okay, doc, so when do I croak? You see, when he was asked to give blood, he thought he was going to die. He didn't understand that you give blood, that doesn't mean you're going to die. But in his mind, he thought he was going to die. In his mind, he was willing to die, thinking he was going to die from a blood transfusion. Jesus comes along and he doesn't make any pretense that he's going to live the way many philosophers live or wanted to live. He's going to die. And he came anyway. So that we could be here today, 2,000 years later, singing about the blood, praising and preaching the word, prayer, because of what God has done. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. That's John 10 and verse 11. Same chapter, verse 14. 
I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. That's that personal relationship I started out with. If you're truly born again, you know it. And if someone were to come to you and try to argue you out of it, they could not. Man over here, I was on his ministry team, not vice versa. And we happened to have different backgrounds. I was a real new Christian. When they promoted a doctrine that basically says, if you're not water baptized, there's no way you can be saved. But it's more than that, that you must be baptized in one formula only, in Jesus' name. So one day he asked me about my baptism, which only took place maybe a few months or a year before that. It wasn't long. And I just naively answered him that, uh, well, I was baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Then, based on his understanding of Scripture, he asked me if I was truly saved. And even as a young Christian, I had the confidence to know that I know that I'm saved. So my reply to him, and remember he's an elder, or he's older than me, and I'm just a young man. I said, you know what? When the rapture occurs, I'm going to ask for special permission to be right next to you <laughs> when we go up. Now what I didn't say to him, because it would have been rude, is in my mind, I'm not concerned about your opinion whether I'm saved or not. I know that I am. And I don't need the validation of men, and neither do you. Because Jesus said, I know my sheep, and they know me. That's what that says. That's what that means. I know my sheep, and they know me. In John 10, 27, listen. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. During the years, especially recent years, I've been reminded of why I initially chose to follow Jesus. Now, I've learned a lot since of all the benefits that came with following the Lord, but I signed on for one reason, peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace, Jesus says, I give unto you. I signed on for that. There have been many, many occasions when we have forfeited our peace because of somebody else. But just like this wallet that's in my pocket right now, the only way anyone's going to get it is they're going to have to take it from me. To someone who says, give me your wallet, maybe there's certain circumstances when you should. No one's taking it from me. Listen to what Jesus said. I'm in the same chapter, chapter 10 at verse 38. And I give them eternal life. The church doesn't give it. The bishop doesn't give it. The elders don't give it. Jesus alone gives it. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. No man. This man, he made out my salvation, but frankly, to put it just bluntly, I don't care if he doubts my salvation. I don't care if the whole world doubts it. I know Christ. I know my Redeemer. I know that my Redeemer lives, my Redeemer lives, and he will stand upon the earth in the latter day. I know whom I have believed. I know it. And the only person in this room right now or watching by television, listening by radio, the only person that needs to know that you have Christ is you. Then when we come together, as we read in John chapter 1, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship one with another. The fact that the church meeting in so many places for all these centuries has had people who are truly not born again and people who truly are, is a cause of much conflict. Look at verse 30, or 29 rather. 
My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Now we have here a relationship in the Trinity. Just want to mention it briefly. Jesus says, you're in his hand. Oh, you're in the Father's hand. So we have evidence of the Trinity there. In any case, who can fight successfully against God? There was a play out back, I think it was the 70s. Your arms are too short to box with God. Yeah. Ah, clever title. I don't know much about the play. Clever title. Everything about you is too weak to argue with God. You know, take God to task. Or like the man I once heard say from the pulpit. If there's a God, it's the pulpit. If there's a God, he has a lot to answer for. I've never heard a statement that was so bereft of reason. God, when I see you, you're going to give me some answers? I think that he will, yes. But out of his grace, not because I'm going to say, now you're going to answer to me. Who would say so? I mean, maybe it was a temporary insanity. But who says things like that? God is God. God can do and will do ultimately anything he wants to do. Here's the good news. He wants you saved. He wants you secure. And in this world where we see so much going on that breeds insecurity and fear and anxiety, he does not want your heart to be afraid. He does not want you to be in the position of anxiety, though we all experience the temptation. Listen, Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. I was quoting that verse to myself last night, where it certainly seems to imply there is some measure of control we have. I'll just loosely say the emotions. Something's troubling you today. And Jesus said, don't let it trouble you. But here's an exception. And we do this during communion. If what you're doing, you know, God said don't do, then you're going to have anxiety, and you should. The application is for the principles of God. When we apply them, we're compliant, we find blessing. When we're non-compliant, we find difficulties, obstacles, all types of things. But let me go back to this. We have a God who wants us to have peace. It's not that we have to beg him for hours and hours and hours. Give me peace, give me peace, give me peace. As though God is saying, I don't know, let me think about it. God has already told you before you asked, I want you to have my peace. But we have to play by the rules. So let me ask you this question here. And I think if you're the average Christian, you're going to right away be able to say the answer, the expected answer. In verse number two, he maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. Let me ask the question, who is leading who? Now again, if you're an average believer, you're going to say, oh, the Lord leads me. Well, that's what the book says. But I want to let you know, if you'll take time to examine yourself, your thoughts, your behavior, you're going to find at times, and it may only be at times, you're leading yourself. You've got your plans for the month, the week, the year. This is what you're going to do. And you're going to be in a certain city, and you're going to do such and such, and so much business. This is what's taught in marketing. This is what's taught by all these people who are billionaires. But I don't have anything to do with them, but I know what this book says. It says, if the Lord wills. Because the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. But they're ordered by the Lord. So the obvious is this. He is leading you, in theory. But you have to ask yourself once again, before you engage on any adventure, it comes to my mind, it has come to my mind as recently as this week, how many things I may do that I never prayed about, I never even asked God. Mostly not major, major decisions, but major enough. Never ask God. Who is leading who? When God is leading you, look at this here. 
He will make you to lie down in green pastures. There's a spot in our yard because under here on Market Street, it's fed with underground springs, which run through my yard. My neighbor's yard is the front, my yard is the back. The snow could be three foot high, four foot, and there'll always be one green spot because it's constantly being fed by these springs in the wintertime. I mention that for this reason, because your mind, if it's average again, how can you provide me green pastures when we see all these natural disasters? Just rest assured that he both can and will because he's God. Does it matter how? He's God. He can divide between two people sitting right next to each other, bless one and not bless the other. That's God. He could do it, by the way, he could do it in the marriage. Bless the husband, not the wife. Bless the wife, not the husband. Bless the husband and the wife, not the children. It depends on the heart of each individual. Who is leading who? And it's not a trite little juvenile question, as you may think. Think it through when you go home today. Think it through this week. Who is leading who? And go before the Lord. Ask him for direction. Listen to this in Psalm 46. The first few verses says this. God is our refuge and strength. Who are you relying on? A very present help in trouble. In the far away. Therefore will not we fear though the earth be removed. And though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. Though the waters thereof roar and be troubled. Though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. Salah. There is a river. The streams whereof shall make glad the city of God. The holy place of the tabernacles of the most high. Who's leading who? In Psalm 46, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried in the midst of the sea. And so, I want to tell you a quick story about yesterday. My brother over here was good enough to accompany me when I had to go pick up my dog. Because to have Buddy in the back seat, and just me... And where I had to go, it's easier to have a passenger. He came along, he was kind enough. So we're leaving here, it was pretty much clear skies, but as we're approaching the kennel where we go to board our dog when we're away is six miles up a mountain, six miles. And it was getting very, very dark, very, very dark. And I kept saying to my brother over here, just hope God will keep the rain away until we get the dog. Well, God didn't. <laughs> And the owner of the kennel was telling me, look, I got an appointment, and I'm like, okay. So I'm driving up this mountain as quickly as I can, driving not on asphalt, but water, and the rain just kept coming down. So we get the dog in the car, we're on our way back, and now the rain is really coming down, and I want to share this with you. In all the years that I've been living in this city here, I've never seen this, not once, not ever. We're on Route 5 over here, which you know is level, even with the river, we're hitting these massive ponds. So I said to my brother here, I'm going to seek higher ground, assuming that would be up above it. But the surprise was this. Every, now you know I live up on the hill here. Every street we drove down, there was a river approaching the car, going down. Now if you were out in it, you understand what I'm saying. It blew off the manholes, the waters were coming out four foot high. I've never seen anything, no matter what street I turned, going uphill wasn't running down the curbs. It was running right down from curb to curb. Cars going through, just splashing water and on and on. And no matter which way I turned, then I finally came to Market Hill, which I figured, well, it's probably past Market Hill. Not doing it there. Same thing. 
all the way to my house. Now, that happened yesterday, and I mentioned it because of what the text says here. Though the mountains be removed, and you know as well as I do how many professing Christians that actually saw mountains being removed would not be saying, therefore, we're not going to fear. This, I would submit to you, this type of confidence takes practice. It takes training. It's facing one stress after the other, and another stress, and another stress, until your spiritual muscles are built up to the point that you say, no matter what is happening, I will not fear. Amen. Will not. But I'm saying this again. This doesn't come your first time out of the gate. This comes from training. Being presented with stress after stress after stress. And I'm suggesting this to you. It's a good suggestion. Every stressor that's in your life today, use it as training. That's the only way, as I've shared with you over the years, you want to build a muscle. You can't use lighter weights. That is so easy. You've got to stress the muscle. Bicep, tricep, pectorals, don't matter. You have to stress it to get them to respond if you want to get stronger. And in just a second here, I'm going to share with you since he's leading us, then we have to come to this conclusion. Who's the one who led us into the valley of the shadow of death? Well, let's, let's wait till we get there. In verse 3, he restores my soul. The microphone that I'm using is powered by rechargeable batteries. Eventually, they'll run out of energy. But you stick them back in the adapter, plug it into an electrical source, and they're recharged or restored. You run out of energy. I run out of energy. God never does. He gives power to the faint. And to those that have no might, he increases strength. That's the promise of God. You signed on for the Lord. and You expected that every day you'd be filled with strength. But what you're finding is that you're weak. And you're weak at moments and times. I was getting dressed this morning to come here. And as I was getting out of bed, which is a bit of a task... And doing some little minor stretches, which I do every day, a verse just came right into my mind. My strength, his strength, is made perfect in weakness. Here's another one for you. He that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And so we look at sufferings as inconveniences. We're frustrated, maybe questions. What about God? What about the promises? I'm suggesting to you, based on the scriptures, it's God himself that's introducing you to this stress. Any good trainer in the gym that wants to make you stronger is going to increase the stress. And by the way, a good trainer will increase the stress little by little. I was talking to a woman, took up strength training, and had a trainer that was piling on the weights. And she said, I just didn't think that's right. I said, it's 100% wrong. It's not the way you train. You add the stress little by little, you will find that the longer you truly walk with the Lord, the stress is increasing. The problems are getting bigger. What is God saying? Number one, I want you stronger than you are. Number two, I solved all of your little problems in the past. Can I solve this big problem? The answer is either yes or no. For me, the answer is yay and amen. Take a new look at your problems. What's bothering you today? could be anything from your stomach to the economy to who's going to be president and on and on and on. And none of this is taught in the scriptures for us to have peace. It's not that we're ignorant and it's not that we're uninformed, that we're not intelligent. But we have to be intelligent enough to be able to trust that the Lord will restore our soul, recharge it. And that he leads us into paths of righteousness, listen, for his name's sake. 
I like the fact that I'm living more righteously now than I did even 10 years ago, let alone 46, 7 years ago. But I have to ask myself the question, who's getting the glory? Is it me or is it God? You are like the moon. Jesus is the sun. We reflect his glory, his strength, his grace. And believe me, it's evident in all of us when it's not there. We're coming into a period of history where men will be crying out for help from the Lord and will not get it. Because there's a line of demarcation. There's a cutoff point when God has said in Old and New Testaments, no more chances. Paraphrased, but that's what it means. That's it. Time is up. I've given you opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And for some reason, you didn't believe what I said. And I'll tell you this. Driving through, when I went home, tried to describe it to my wife. I said, you had to see it. I've never seen anything like this in my entire life. I couldn't help but to keep thinking we're seeing the incremental judgments of God. We can talk about global warming and all these things. And quite frankly, that's above my pay grade. Whatever's causing it, I know ultimately there's a God sitting on a throne in the universe who can control things. He can direct the heart of the king either way. God is controlling all these things. And in my mind, we're seeing the incremental judgments of God that should be speaking to an alert individual to say, get yourself right with God and do it today. Because the book says today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off till this afternoon or I should say till tomorrow. Yeah, I'm going to change. Today is when you change or you don't. When we're pricked in the heart and our conscience is pricked and we don't make a place right then and there to make the changes necessary, it is percentage-wise not likely you're going to change tomorrow, but most of what you heard or read is forgotten. You'll keep on going on the wrong path. Look at verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now no one, just like if you really, really knew you were going to die for a cause, like this story of the young boy, most people are not going to sign up, or at least many. And no one's going to say, oh God, today, please lead me in dark, scary places. Yet the question is again brought up. If you're in a scary and dark place and you know in your heart you're following the Lord, who led you there? Now, yes, it's possible sin will lead you there, but then God's not leading. And the devil can tempt you, but even then, he only does so by permission from God. Read Job. And I will submit to you, the Lord is my shepherd and all this. He makes me lie down, but he's the one that leads us into these dark valleys. But why? So that we're able to say, I will fear no evil. It's a dangerous place. Have you ever been truly in a neighborhood where you know you should not be there? And so have I. In fact, in my neighborhoods where I grew up, you shouldn't have come in that neighborhood. You get the concept. So we don't by choice say, I'm going to go to the most dangerous place today just for thrills and giggles. But when you find yourself in a dark place, you have to ask yourself, keeping sin in mind, did sin bring me here? If you say, well, I can't think of anything at the moment. I mean, I'm serving God with all my heart. Then the conclusion would be this. God led you there to face it. The only way you can overcome any fear, you must face it. You must do it. You must be willing, and I'll just quote this famous saying, you must be willing to not back down and not sit in your seat doing nothing. You never overcome fears in a theoretical sense. It must be done in a practical sense so that you can see that this is true. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. How many of you have ever seen The Wizard of Oz? 
And so we find Dorothy and the Scarecrow and all her companions in this very dark place. And here is the Cowardly Lion. Initially, it talks about not believing in spooks, that all these demons come. And they throw the straw man all over the place and all of that. And all the Cowardly Lion can keep saying is, I do believe in spooks. I do believe in spooks. Thinking that that's going to keep him away. If you grew up in a neighborhood like mine, do you think telling the bully looking really afraid of you is going to stop him? or her, from taking your money or beating you up. The only way you overcome fear is you face it down and prove to yourself that God cannot lie. That God cannot lie. Now, that's not easy to do. And never confuse simplicity with ease. Things that are simple are not always easy. These stressors in our life, including the dark places, if indeed it was God who leads us, if indeed God is leading you and you're in a dark place, that God led you there. I read, well, I quoted, for our communion service every week, we talk about the discipline of the Lord, the chastening of the Lord, premature death, sickness. And in that context, no one can miss 1 Corinthians, the fact that God brought that there or permitted it. And we are to approach the communion table in such a manner that it is reverent and serious, and we come with a contrite heart. Anyway, are you in a dark place today? You're human. We all face fears. Yet here... God's word says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear any evil. So who are you going to believe, the newscaster or the word of God? And the reason that we don't fear is because he's with us. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, and the age has not ended. He's still with his people. Thy rod and thy staff, they come for me. The staff is just the sheep can see where the shepherd's going to follow the shepherd. The rod is made for the wolves to throw and protect. He guides us and he protects us. This thought came to me years ago and I've given it to you. Someone just recently wrote it back to me. In a prayer meeting many years ago, this thought just came to me, which is true. God is already in tomorrow, today. So you get up and you watch the news for that day. But while we're here on Sunday, July the 30th, God is already in August the 1st. He's already there. So nothing surprises him, but he has prepared for us. Look at verse 5. Prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies because a good shepherd goes out before he takes the sheep to graze to make sure there's nothing noxious, toxic, poisonous, or anything else the sheep might ingest because they will. Many of you have pets. I'll speak mainly of a dog. They're completely dependent on us. And we say, no, 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 don't eat that. Otherwise, they're going to eat something that's bad or poisonous or may, might kill them, make them very sick. The good shepherd goes out early in the morning before the sheep. And in my illustration, God, who is outside of time, is already in tomorrow, the next day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, is already there. Nothing surprises him. If he's leading you, that's a salient question this morning. I was raised in the church. You could have been raised anywhere. That does not make you a Christian. You could have people filling a church building with a church service, and the doctrine is correct, and the music was good, and the prayer, and on and on and on. But you must be born again by the Spirit of God, which only God can do. And then you can be assured He's leading you, even in that dark place. And ask yourself, Lord, what is the lesson I'm supposed to learn? But it always gets down to this. Do you trust me? Or do you trust whatever else it is you're trusting in? Remember, his strength is made perfect 
in weakness. Verse 5, thou preparest the table before me in the, I like this, in the presence of my enemies. I think it was Frank Sinatra who said this, I'll paraphrase it, that the best thing that you can do to antagonize your enemies is to have massive success. Because they hate it. They don't want you to have success. You have people in your life that don't want you to have success. But generally speaking, Satan doesn't want us to have any success. And yet here, we see that he not only prepares a table before us, he does it in the presence of our enemies. Then he anoints our head with oil, and our cup runs over. Sheep, you have all these little pests bothering them on their nose. What a shepherd will do is wipe a certain balm and keeps all these pests away. He anoints our head with oil. Our cups run over. This coming October, we're here a full 18 years. We came here with nothing. Nothing. I mean literally nothing. And for 18 years, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, God has always supplied. Always supplied. Prior to that, when I was in the Bronx, same thing. I'd start off in a little Honda with 50 hymnals, a little communion set, tiny little amp was this big that someone else donated. And you know the story. It went on from there. And God has always supplied. I reminded my wife of this on vacation. I said, even when we were in Yonkers and then the Bronx, when we really had no tangible support, yet God always supplied. Our first year in ministry, when we really had nothing, we were still able to take a two-week vacation. People thought, some people thought, just assumed we were getting bankrolled by our denomination. Never happened. God bankrolled my ministry from day one. And God supplied every single need. And my expectation is that he will continue to supply every single need of mine and of yours till we all reach heaven. Do you really believe that? Look, if you're in a fight, round by round, doesn't mean you're not going to have a bloody nose or your head's going to hurt or your ribs or whatever. It just means that at the end, you win. In this fight, God's not saying you won't even feel pain. That's impossible when we leave the crucified life. You have mental anguish, you have physical anguish, and all these other things that go on that keep testing you and testing you until you say out louder to yourself, I'm tired of being tested. And God just looks, I think, sometimes, just like a good trainer, just looks, pick it up. I can't. I had this happen because, you know, I train people in the gym. How many push-ups can you do? 100. I said, okay, let's try them my way. Old man. And I showed him how to do them real slow. At number six, he's starting to shake because they're not easy to do. Number seven, I said, come on, do it. Well, he got through seven or eight. I said, come on, right away. Went over to the dip station. I said, I want you to hold that all the way down, slow. I think he got to two, three, when he started saying, I can't. And me, just being me, said, do it. Do it. I can't. I said, do it. Well, I was just teasing him. The truth is, it was very difficult protocol. Still is. But a good trainer is going to get the most out of you. So that when you finally take a shower and get dressed, even an hour, two, three days later, you're starting to feel good. You have self-respect. And you'll also get respect or admiration from other people. Then someone says, how do you do this? Jesus. Yeah. Jesus. I told this to someone just three weeks ago in the gym. I give the credit to God. Lastly, the first word is the most important. Surely. Things are going to work out well, eventually. Surely. 
Things are going to work out God's way, surely. And of that, there is no doubt, or should be no doubt. Goodness and mercy shall follow me. And again, if you've ever been followed by someone, and I have, where I suspected that this person was going to rob me, and that wasn't what he was looking for. But instead of getting followed by a predator, the Bible says you'll be followed by goodness and mercy. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. The honesty and truth, this struck me as I was meditating on this verse. The honesty and truth of Jesus, if it were not so, I would have told you. Now, let's, let's rewrite for a moment. Jesus speaking. I'm going to the cross. I will be raised from the dead. I'm going to my Father's house, but there's nothing there for you. And what he's saying is if that was the truth, he would have told us that. Live your blessed life now, as some people buy into that rhetorical nonsense. He said, if it was so, if there was nothing left afterwards, I would have told you. That just struck me just last night when I was reading it. I would have told you there's nothing for you. But he says, there are, in my father's house, many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. That where I am, ye may be also. Let me close with this story. I was listening to an interview done by a song leader. Does a lot of hymn sings. And they were having a big one in Atlanta. He decided to call this older woman. I mean, she was like, not older, she was old. Who was one of the best, in his opinion, one of the best Hammond organ players that he'd ever met. Wanted to see if she'd be interested in making the trip to Atlanta and a few other places they were going. But it meant she had to ride on the bus with the rest of the choir and team musicians. When he called her up, would you like to go? Her answer was, when and where? This is an older woman. I mean, old. I want to emphasize that. I'm older. Some people are old. When and where? That was her response. Oh, great. Now, she's got to ride on a bus. Long trips. And as he was explaining it, and she was sitting there, because they were on the platform when the explanation was given, he says, you know, and she had to sleep in a little compartment. He says, to be honest with you, it looked like a casket. And she immediately responded to that by saying, I was practicing. <laughs> practicing for what? To hear the voice of the Lord, the sound of the trumpet, the shout that comes, and the dead in Christ are raised out of their caskets. So you may not need an expensive one. Because we shall be raised. Why? Because thy word is truth. And I ask you one last time as we go to prayer. I'll add an adjective. Do you really believe this? It's one thing to acknowledge doctrine, biblical doctrine. Uh, yeah. If you really believe it, no matter how difficult your position is right now, no matter how dark your place is right now, you know you're coming out on the other side. And it's going to be all right. If you get buried before Jesus returns, you shall rise again because Jesus said so. And he said, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe it? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. You know, I truly feel sorry for those who once had a habit of church attendance and no longer have the habit. I truly do. And whatever they're doing today, oh, the sun is shining. Well, it wasn't yesterday. And I'm telling you, what was coming down the streets of this city here were rivers, rivers of waters. But even though the mountains are being removed, we will not fear. Do you believe it? You must answer that question for yourself. 
And just keep in mind, this is to help you. It doesn't mean you won't be tempted to fear. You won't feel the physiology of anxiety where stress hormones are released and dizziness and all the things that go along with what is loosely called anxiety. But you overcome it by the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony. I refuse. I will not let my heart be troubled. Let's pray today that God would strengthen us, continue to anoint us, and be faithful to the end. Father, we come before you today in Jesus' mighty name. Just hearing and reading from the pearl of the Psalms. I'm not going to say this this way, Lord. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Because only faith in you is going to make us stable. And only facing our fears will make us overcome them. The world will be dominated by fear and the spirit of fear, which you have not given to us all of our lives. We bless you today, Father God, for what we have. And I truly have compassion and feel pity for those today who believe this sunshine is going to last. Nothing in this world lasts. Everything they have will be taken from them. You give us something that will never be taken from us. Ever. Not ever. So we bless you and we praise you. We thank you for these things. We thank you, Lord, that you are the shepherd of those who put their trust in you. And they'll never want. Tempted, they'll be. We will all be. But we'll never want. God, you'll make a way when there seems to be no way. Because you're God. So today, Lord, during this week, help us to remember the things we've heard and read. During the week, remind us of those two great commandments. is to love you with all of the heart, all of the soul, all of the mind, and all of our strength. Then we are to turn, prove that we love you by loving one another. Remind us of these things. And we will give you all the praise, all the glory, and all the honor today. In Jesus' name. Can you say amen with me today? Amen.